0: From Revenue Rhino, I'm Brad Hammond, and this is the Lifelong Customer Podcast. We're interviewing successful sales and marketing leaders and discussing ways in which they're building lifelong relationships with their customers. Welcome to the Lifelong Customer Podcast. I'm your host, Brad Hammond, and today I have Michael from Interactive Government Holdings. Michael, it's really nice to have you on. Thank you. Thank you. Absolutely. So I'm excited for today's discussion. Can you tell me a bit about who you are and what your company
1: does? Sure. My name is Michael Sanders. I'm the CEO and founder of Interactive Government Holdings, IGH. IGH primarily does administrative support services, the federal government, more specifically we do a lot of veterans employment veterans outreach non-medical case management we do that pretty much all over the country we do some it work we're probably across six or seven agencies both dod and civilian
0: nice that's awesome
1: and what's your story how did you get into this space i moved to dc to be closer to my older daughter I was doing political consulting, and George Bush signed an executive order allowing 3% of government spending to go to service-disabled veteran-owned businesses. And I didn't know there was 10,000 people that were waiting for that legislation to come through, but I was able to get into that first wave of companies that was certified as service-disabled veteran-owned. My plan at the time was to sell very similar services that I was when I was doing political consulting, but we realized very quickly that getting a platform or a technology into an agency took a lot of time and a lot of money, neither of which we had much of. have had a lot of great mentors and a lot of great advisors, a lot of great friends and I very quickly pivoted into professional services. Administrative support is sort of a low barrier to entry in terms of the federal government. Just in terms of if you win a contract with three people, you can generally bootstrap that versus if you win a contract with three SME type people that are making a couple hundred bucks an hour, and now you're looking at $25,000 or $24,000 a week, whatever, <laughs> a good way to get into the market and then start moving up market in terms of the type of work you go after.
0: I love it. So what advice would you have for other entrepreneurs when it comes to growing a company? Obviously, you don't have just three people. You have many more and you've built a really successful organization here. What strategies and tactics have you used to get there?
1: The common refrain in government contracting is to start out being a subcontractor. I think it can be helpful to subcontract, but if you're a new small business and you're new to the market and you don't come from a large business where you know somebody or you weren't in the federal government where large businesses were knocking on your door all the time, I think that's incomplete advice because if you're not in one of those particular buckets, when you go see a large business, they're going to say, who do you know at the agency? Do you have customer intimacy? Were you tracking this before it came out in terms of the opportunity? Who's on a source selection board? All things that generally a new small business owner will not know because he won't have the he or she won't have the market intelligence tools and the network and the people working on site telling him or her all those things. So my feeling is that in in order to grow a government contracting business, you should always be priming. In sales, they say always be closing in the federal government. I I think you should always be priming. Whether that's a one-person job, uh, which is what I want in Alaska, for I had one lady working at Fort Wainwright, Alaska. I've had people in Guam, Puerto Rico. We've had people in all the states. But being a prime contractor, even of one employee gives you the entire experience of government contracting. You have to read and execute the contract. You have to abide by the acceptable quality levels and the requirements within the contract in order to be compliant. You have to invoice your customer. You have to use whatever system the customer may have, whether that be wide area workflow like d o d or i p p learner anyway, different agencies have these different systems that they want you to do, and they all have different requirements in terms of what backup they want and uh, how they want their invoices in. So being a prime, even if it's just one person or two or three little little contracts, you gain so much more experience than you do as a subcontractor where essentially you give resumes, they accept them or they don't, the people get picked or they don't, and then after that, you get a check you don't get privy to the customer. You don't have an opportunity to grow the work. And if the sub, for whatever reason, is not making their margin or the guy's not going to make his bonus, they're going to cut your people. I unfortunately have some people I do business with that had a prime contractor, which was a fellow small business, just take 65 people back. Two-thirds of their workforce, I think, at the time. And there was no reason other than the guy just wanted them back. So As prime, you keep that power, you gain the experience, you're privy to the customer, you can walk the halls, get into the agency, meet other customers. I just think you should always be priming as a small business.
0: Yeah, I love it. So how have you built a solid team? You mentioned Guam and Alaska and all these different places. You must have this recruiting engine that's just going all the
1: time and all this. We spent a good amount of time shoring up our infrastructure so that it's ready to scale at any time. We can go from 100 employees to 1,000 employees with changing very little except probably the amount of people that it would take to process the things that come out of the system. One of the things that we've done is we've connected our market intelligence tools. We've documented how they're connected. I think I mentioned to you on our pre-interview, I hired a high-performance growth team a couple years ago. At the end of the year, I had to let them go because there was no growth, unfortunately at the advice of an advisor who said some interesting thing, which was like, take the embarrassment, take the shame away. And I was like, I'm ashamed. And then I thought, you well, maybe I can't, maybe I kind of am because I, I spent a million bucks on something that didn't work. But he recommended I do a deconstruction, right? And I start from letting the team go and I work backwards. And I, I think about the good, the bad and the ugly. And how did I get to the outcome? And Annie Duke in, in her book about the world championship of poker, she talks about how you can play all the right cards and you can play all the right percentages and still get beat. And so you have, you have to detach your strategy from your outcome sometimes because sometimes you had a great strategy, but because of whatever, someone drew that ace or that jack, a one in 1,000 hand and you got beat. Doing that deconstruction, what I realized was that we have a ton of great content. We have a ton of great documentation on our content. We were able to use it to get ISO certified, which is for those not in government contracting, it just certifies that your processes are all the same, they're quality, you do things the same on every program, HR runs the same for everybody, that kind of thing. So a lot of the things they did, there was not immediate return on investment. And then we had a year where we had to recover from it, but hiring new people and having them come into that system that the other people created, has been very successful. That crew, for whatever reason, maybe was more focused on the system than the opportunities, but the new person has been able to come in and look at what they did and very quickly get things going. So sometimes you have to think about business or like the bamboo tree, right? It stays on the ground for five years and I think it shoots up 90 feet in 60 days or 90 days or something. Sometimes the good doesn't come out for a little while, but if you look for it and you reflect, you can at least find the bare minimum a lesson of what not to do again. Going back to my deconstruction, the very first thing that I realized was I had went outside of our normal processes in order to hire these people. And normally, I talk to my CFO, I talk to my HR director, I talk to my executive coach, I have people do Berkman's, which some of that I did, but like I didn't discuss it with my CFO first. I just started negotiating, and I started doing multiple negotiations with multiple people, Over long periods, and I feel like at the end maybe I was suffering from a little negotiation fatigue because i had been negotiating with three different people about very specific things for a long period of time. Realizing that, and then from another advisor, he told me you overpaid people and you tried to buy yourself out of a problem, and that was good advice because the person I have now is completely—they're compensated well, but it's in line with the market. There wasn't heavy negotiations; it was kind of like. I want unlimited upside and autonomy. Like, cool. That's what I love to give people. One of the big lessons learned I've taken over the last few years.
0: I love it. These are great lessons. I love the bamboo analogy too. I've built companies in this one currently, the first six months a year is rough. And then for the next year is a bit more the next year. I love that analogy of bamboo.
1: Yeah. My daughter just recently started a graphic design thing and she does these paint nights and she was telling me a little bit about it and just kind of expressing, but not saying it in a way like, it hurts when people reject you, you know? And I had to tell her, was like, when you first start a business, you don't have employees and it's just you, you feel like people are saying no to you. And then after a little while, it's like, the company's not you anymore, the company's the company. It doesn't feel as personal, even though it shouldn't feel personal at first. Which I told her. I said, "They're not saying no to you. Everybody has has their own stuff." I remember the moment when it was like I sort of realized that the company had grown just beyond me. And uh, and EA was working on a baby announcement, and I was like, "Is that one of your friends?" And she was like, "No, it's an IGH baby." People typically remember where they worked when they had a baby. That was important to me that they had a good experience with that and that they had what they needed in order to ensure that the first months with their babies were good ones. So it's an interesting thing.
0: Yeah. I love that. So let's talk about content, LinkedIn, podcasts. You've been on a lot of podcasts. You're creating some YouTube content. Tell me about it. How do you see that fitting into what you're doing?
1: I feel like as the company's grown and as I've had to be less involved with day-to-day operations and just in terms of signing checks or approving things. I still have to do some of those things. But for me, I feel like it's my job as the founder and CEO to be positioned in the company in the market. I think you do that by podcast, by LinkedIn content, or by writing things that are relevant to your industry. So I have a class that I'm going to teach at George Mason this fall called DevCon Entrepreneurship. So that's kind of another way of Introducing kids to this multi-billion dollar industry that they have no idea is in their backyard. A lot of them that are taking the GovCon mine were like, yeah, I had no idea (laughs) prior to taking some classes, which is crazy because it's probably 90% of the DMV area. Somebody's affiliated with contracting in some way, shape, or form, and no one spends more money than Uncle Sam. So it's interesting that more kids don't want to get into it especially because we need them now in terms of innovation and innovative things that are going to help us get ahead in terms of national security.
0: So what's the most difficult challenge you've faced as CEO and how did you overcome
1: it? We won a $50 million contract that was protested for 18 months and cost me around $900,000 to defend when I was not making a lot of money.
0: How did you get past that?
1: Basically, I hired a, a K Street law firm that was known for that. The partner was eight fifty an hour. I ran around DC, borrowing five and ten thousand dollars as much as I could, to keep him working. And luckily, after the first hundred days of GAO protest, the contracting officer bridged us as the new winner instead of the incumbent. Uh, so after that first hundred days, I was playing with the the house's money at that point.
0: I love it. What's one thing you wish you had known when you first Became a CEO that you know now. I was going
1: to say Spanish is a joke, but I don't know. You You added that you know now. And so I'm I'm only like four lessons into Duolingo. One of the lessons learned recently that, uh, from the growth team was is that you can't be strictly focused on growth. You have to grow your company evenly. If you just focus on sales, 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 HR and contracts, and everybody else is going to be slammed and pulling their teeth out. And then that's going to frustrate sales because they're not going to be getting the documents they need to move the business forward. So it creates an ugly internal tug of war if you don't support the growth team or support the HR team with the sales team. You have to think about it in terms of growing each vertical sort of simultaneously in order to support the growth and figuring out. Is a half a person support two people? Figuring out that mix is, is something that each business has to do based on their value proposition.
0: Absolutely. So if you go back in time and give your younger self a piece of advice before you became CEO, what would that be and how would it maybe change your approach?
1: I think I would just tell myself to be patient.
0: Patience is a good virtue. And Are there situations in which patience would have really helped
1: I can't tell you the amount of times that someone's called me late in the evening with a problem. I said I'd want to sleep on it. And by the time I woke up, it had been resolved. Or I said I wanted to percolate on it or I needed a little time to think about it. And I do that now as a strategy because I think sometimes problems resolve themselves with time and patience. The converse to that is when you're patient, you have to be ready for the opportunities. Better to be a, a warrior and a gardener than a gardener in a war, right? So you always have to be sharpening the blade, looking for opportunities, looking for those things that are going to move your business forward. And you mentioned LinkedIn content and video and the stuff that I do that does really well is, tends to be personal stuff. It tends to be things like personally or pictures or whatever. For me, I think that a mix of showing both your capability and your expertise in your industry but also, your person. I think people like to get a little peek behind the curtain sometimes.
0: Can you describe a time when you had to pivot business strategy and how'd you make that decision?
1: I mentioned the $49 million win that we had in 15. In 18, we, we lost it. We lost to recompete. We had undercut really bad. That cut out about two thirds of our revenue. So we had to immediately let go of support staff. I cut my salary drastically. We started from a bare bones crew. There was five of us in the back office. There's not many more now, but that's also because we've been able to automate some systems and update some things, so that we don't need as many people. Like many companies did during COVID, you figure out how to automate and make up for the loss. So. Not to say that we're not going to hire some people back, but we did realize that certain areas, there was people that were there that were just causing more work, or or they were just a stopping point of work. And then it just went to the next person. A lot of companies realize that and are sort of revamping how they're going to use their human resources and people in the future. In terms of that, soft skills are going to be more important than ever.
0: If you could offer one piece of advice for industry, what would it be?
1: Stop protesting when your feelings are hurt. If you lose the bid, the government didn't generally disregard their evaluation criteria. If they gave a good debrief, take your loss and move on. I've gotten to the point now where I just add 100 days to any win because I know it's going to be protested. It's just a huge waste of money. A lot of them are meritless. They say X, Y, and Z. when they The bluff, the bottom line up front, right, is... Do you really want to sue a customer for work? How awkward that must be. It's like we chose company A, but company B sued us and we had to give it to them. Hey, company B, welcome.
0: We're really excited to work with you.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Th- thanks for suing us to get this work. There are times when, in fact, the government does not follow their criteria, grossly doesn't follow their own criteria. And I think during those times, there are legitimate times of protest. I think in general, based on what I read and the protests that I read and what I see, it's generally pretty much hurt feelings.
0: Well, Michael, it's been amazing to have you on the podcast. Really appreciate you sharing all your wisdom, insights, and advice here.
1: My pleasure. Thanks so much.
0: Absolutely.